Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your regular slice of true crime for my North Wales spare room, that hopefully you won't know of, or have heard on countless other shows before, and that may astound, horrify, or mind-boggle you, because you think, what? I am as ever Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved, hairy, football-looking true crime enthusiast cat, Peeksy, is here with me as ever sat right by my side, nuzzling my hand with his head as I speak. And the two parts of the true crime triangle we make up are completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that tune in each time and make my talking to myself in my spare room justified so I don't feel like I should have a bell around my neck. It is as wonderful as ever having you join us today, which I thank you kindly for doing so, and I hope that as you have, it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good all safe, and all well. Right then, no messing, it's down to the second part of the tale I've brought before my short moving house break. Side note, never ever move house if you can help it. What a bastard of a thing to do. And before we go all in, I say this all the time, if you haven't yet heard part one of A Mother's Love, then please head and listen to that first, because if you don't, This episode may as well be in Latin to you otherwise. But if you have, then a slight recap. In part one, I brought you the account of what must be every parent's nightmare. That was almost the title of this two-parter, until I remembered that I've already done an episode with that title a couple of years ago. And that's the abduction of a newborn baby, Abby Humphreys, from a hospital in Nottingham when she was just five hours old. The abduction captured the nation's hearts at the time. It brought information from all over the UK, with people trying to help, as well as the mindless and cruel actions of a few serving nothing except, well, for who knows what reasons, with cruel hoaxes. And as police officers searched through every tip-off they received, potentially having to check every baby born since the moment Abby was taken, it must have felt like a mountain. And her parents, Karen and Roger Humphreys, struggled to keep it together and to not lose hope. Yet, the information that would help find Abby was already in the system, so would police get to her and reunite parents and daughter? Well, let's go and find out right now. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second and concluding part of a tale that I've entitled, A Mother's Love. In the early hours of Saturday, July the 16th, 1994, 17 days after Abby had been snatched, a team of police officers, a social worker, and a news crew from Central Television gathered outside a three-bedroom detached house shrouded with net curtains, hidden by tall fir trees, rose bushes, and a Japanese larch, number 14 Brendan Drive, a quiet cul-de-sac in the Nottinghamshire district of Wollerton. An A-registered Vauxhall Astra, bearing a worldwide Fund for Nature sticker, stood parked in the driveway. Believing baby Abby was in there, They stormed the premises and moved in on the three occupants of the house shortly after 1am. The whole process was filmed by a television crew from Central Television and was watched by the few residents still awake in the quiet cul-de-sac. One eyewitness, Anthony Sewell, said, I heard someone and saw a man in a suit running down the road carrying what looked like an iron bar with a handle attached. He ran towards the house and more police followed. There were about six or seven officers and you could hear their radios. I didn't hear any loud noises and I don't think they smashed the door down. But soon afterward, the son and his mum and the girlfriend were led out and all put into the back of a white Ford Granada. I couldn't see their faces, but there didn't seem to be any struggle. The occupants of the house were 25-year-old mechanic Lee Gilbert, his mother Joan, and his 22-year-old partner, Julie Kelly, all of whom were in bed at the time. There was a fourth occupant of the property too, 
Lee and Julie's newborn daughter, Lucy Rosalind, who'd been born on the same day as Abby Humphreys. It wasn't the first time police had been around to the house during the 17-day hunt. They'd been around twice before, as part of routine inquiries with new mothers. But this third time, it was on the belief that this baby, Lucy Rosalind, was in fact Abby Humphreys. Knocking heavily on the door, it was shortly opened by a half-awake Lee Gilbert, and officers burst in, rousing Julie Kelly from her sleep. When they spoke to Kelly, she maintained briefly that the baby was hers, but then a moment later, confessed that it was indeed Baby Abby. Detective Sergeant Nick Holmes was the officer tasked with contacting Karen and Roger Humphreys beforehand, saying, I think we found your daughter. What a phone call that must have been indeed, eh? And Karen and Roger were immediately around to the address. Mr Holmes recalled later, I was the one that had to go up and identify her in the room and bring her out of the house. And there's a photograph of me when I'm carrying her down the street that Central TV framed for me, which was really kind. I handed her back to her mum and dad. I knew Roger and Karen quite well by that point, because they were frequent visitors into the incident room. I would talk them through what we were doing to try and find their daughter. Recalling the emotional reunion between daughter and parents, Karen described. I knew immediately that she was mine. She'd lost a lot of weight because the woman had obviously not been feeding her very well. But you couldn't miss that shock of blonde hair she'd been born with. But it was more than that. I just knew this was my baby. There's something between a mother and her child that's stronger than all the tests. Aside from weight loss, Abby was found to be absolutely fine following an examination at the Queen's Medical Centre, and blood tests later proved conclusively that the baby the police had rescued in the dead of night was indeed Abby Humphreys. Neighbours of the Humphreys said that they were delighted to hear the news that Abby had been found. Keith Jardin, who was looking after the Humphreys house while they stayed with relatives during their ordeal, said later, I always had confidence that they'd find her. It was just a case of when. I'm going to go around and ask for contributions for a big bouquet of flowers, and I just want to see them coming home with little Abby. Outside Karen and Roger's home, waiting for them when they arrived back, their family now complete again, was a large sign reading, Welcome Home Abby, surrounded by bouquets of flowers. Meanwhile, Neighbours in Brendan Drive struggled to get their heads around the developing events. Few in the street knew the names of the occupants of number 14, but claimed that they were secretive, with neighbours saying how surprised they were at how isolated the three had become, and how little people living so close together knew about one another. Roy Wright, who lived a few doors away, said, I'm just astonished we never heard a baby crying because it's so quiet here. We've all had our windows open and doors ajar because of the heat, but then again, we all thought that she was pregnant, so what would we have done? I don't know any of the family, but I saw her and she looked genuinely pregnant. She's nothing like the police photo fit picture, and neither is the mother. She's very small, with fair or light ginger hair. Another neighbour, who asked not to be named, said, I got the impression that the two women didn't get on. You'd often see the girlfriends sit outside the house in the car for hours on end rather than go inside. My kids used to call them the car couple because of the time they spent there. Ken Curl from number 18, two doors away, said, When we heard the news, there were mixed feelings. We thought, great, they found Abby. But then, my God. She was next door but one all the time. We really knew very little about them, even though we've been here for 17 years. But if anyone could pull it off, it would be someone like that. People who just didn't mix with anyone else. All three occupants of number 14 had been arrested, 
though Lee and Joan Gilbert were soon released without charge after it emerged that they too had both been duped. Kelly was interviewed four times at West Bridgeford Police Station and each time admitted taking Abby and merely pretending in an elaborate charade for the past near 10 months that she had been pregnant. She had not told Lee or anyone else about a miscarriage she had suffered the previous October, according to her, and I'll come on to explain about this later. She claimed she'd gone to the hospital that day simply to look at and hold a baby, and insisted that the decision to take Abby was a spur-of-the-moment one. But once she'd taken her, it became harder to give her up, and that on several occasions, she had been on the point of calling the police. Ironically, Kelly was actually genuinely pregnant at that moment. Her eyebrows raised in perplexity, Kelly gazed around Nottingham's Magistrate Court No. 2 on Monday the 18th of July 1994 as she was accused of abducting baby Abby Humphreys, charged under the Child Abduction Act of 1984. Dressed in a shapeless blue jumper and white t-shirt, hands clasped in front of her, Kelly spoke only once, a quiet but firm yes to confirm her identity and then looked past the army of journalists towards the bench as a solicitor, Michael Morris, asked for the reporting restrictions to be lifted so he could deliver the following short statement, saying, She wishes to say at this, the earliest possible opportunity, that she deeply regrets the distress caused to baby Abby's parents and family. For two weeks, my client has looked after the baby to the best of her ability. It is a most fervent hope that baby Abby has not suffered unduly or at all. I am told she is a very beautiful baby. My client can only express remorse at what has happened. She herself has also experienced great distress. Kelly's father, Eric, the only family member present, stood apart at the back of court too. A small, thin man, he remained expressionless his shoulders hunched and lips pursed, during his only daughter's short hearing. Both prosecution and police expressed concerns for Kelly, with Prosecutor Janine Smith asking that she be remanded in custody, saying, We have substantial grounds for believing that if released on bail, her safety and welfare would be at risk. There was no application for bail and she was remanded to the hospital wing of New Hall Prison in Wakefield. Outside the court, an unforgiving crowd had gathered to catch a glimpse of the woman accused of robbing Karen and Roger Humphreys of the first 16 days of their daughter's life. Jail's too easy for her after what she did, said a young woman with a baby in a pushchair. Lee Gilbert's solicitor, meanwhile, Digby Johnson, claimed his client was the real loser in the drama. He said Mr Gilbert, who had been arrested but released without charge, sincerely believed Abby was his child, explaining, He truly believed she was pregnant and had good reason to. He is a complete mess. He is distraught. The first time he realised the truth was when the police arrived in the early hours of Saturday. And as I said, it was the third visit police had made to the house. As Karen and Roger were there helpless, imagining the worst as more than 70 police officers ran around like headless chickens trying to find the baby. Meanwhile, just three kilometres from the Queen's Medical Centre, in the leafy Nottingham suburb of Wallerton, 22-year-old Kelly was showing neighbours her newborn baby. She'd previously told her next-door neighbour, Naznin Kokar, that she'd been expecting a boy. He later told the independent newspaper. She really was pregnant. She'd put on a lot of weight and had swollen ankles, but we were a bit surprised because she'd said she'd had a scan and was told there would be a boy. When she told us she'd had a girl, she said, Thank goodness we didn't buy any boys' clothes after the scan. My brother and sister said they were suspicious and they kept saying, they've got baby Abby. But I just thought they had overactive imaginations. 
The first person to act on their suspicions of Julie's behaviour was her other next-door neighbour, Glennis Smith. Glennis said later that Kelly and Lee had told people they were expecting a boy with Down syndrome and heart and lung defects, a baby boy who was to be called Troy. Imagine the surprise then that morning, the 2nd of July, when Lee announced that Kelly had given birth to a healthy girl called Lucy Rosalind, a home birth the previous day, with no midwife or doctor present. Glennis decided that it must be Abby. It was too close in distance and a call not to be, and called the police anonymously, calling herself the codename October on Monday, July the 4th. By a day later, she was in disbelief that no one had been to check her lead, and at 5pm on Wednesday the 6th of July, she called again, and three hours later, police did come around to number 14. It's reported that one officer saw the newborn baby sat on Lee's knee, and after 20 minutes, they left, satisfied that it wasn't Abby. Another neighbour, Liz Winfield, a primary school teacher from number 19, recalled. It was a working day over a week ago in the early evening when they came. My son was playing football in the road when a police transit van pulled up and two policemen leapt out, put the helmets on. They were in and out in 10 minutes. One of my neighbours said the police were just checking because the woman's baby was born on the same day as Abby. Now a few neighbours later admitted to having been suspicious, but most of their fears had been allayed by this police visit. Some had believed that the girlfriend, small dark-haired woman often seen in a uniform, had recently had a baby, some had heard crying, while others saw baby clothes, rompers and a blue dress, hanging from the line, and whilst passers-by saw newly hung curtains decorated with yellow and white teddy bears in an upstairs window. On the windowsill stood two cuddly stuffed dogs and a piggy bank, the nursery that Lee Gilbert had lovingly decorated over the previous few months. On Friday, July the 8th, Glennis Smith, unable to shake the suspicion she had, discussed her fears with friends. One of these friends told Trish Clark, who was a childminder of the local midwife, Annette Davis. Then, on Monday the 11th of July, community midwifery manager Sarah Kirkwood got a call from a local Boots pharmacist who was suspicious about a recent customer. The customer, Lee Gilbert, had tried to buy cleaning swabs that were no longer used or prescribed in Nottingham, explaining that his partner had had a quick home birth on July the 1st. The pharmacist found out Lee's surname and passed it on to the police. As a result, police made another visit to Kelly's home in Wollerton, but once again left, satisfied that she didn't have Abby. Later that same Monday, Sarah checked and found there were no records of any home deliveries in the area at the time. She contacted the police, but was also mindful that it could be an illegal home birth, and not in fact be Abby. Sarah said later, First babies born at home are unusual, particularly if it's only an hour and a half delivery. The day before Abby's rescue, Annette Davis went to pick up her children from the childminder, Trish Clark, and it was then that Trish told her about Glennis calling the police. Annette then called Glennis herself and asked what had happened, recalling, as soon as she'd said that Julie had had the baby at home, I thought, hello, I've had six babies and four of them were at home, so I know what you have to do. I knew something was really wrong. The more I thought about it, the more it was just staring me in the face. Annette then contacted community midwife Alison Challenger to check records for home deliveries in the area. Alison had been with Sarah Kirkwood when the pharmacist had called and put two and two together. So Alison contacted the midwife who was on call in the area, Joe Wilson, and a flurry of calls occurred between the midwives, their manager, and the police. In the end, it was on the third police visit to the house in Brendan Drive 
stemming from these actions, that Abby was found safe and well. However, in the days that followed her recovery, the inquiry team faced growing criticism. When it emerged that the incident room had received five tip-offs suggesting that Abby was in the house at Brendan Drive, and it had been visited twice already by officers, questions were asked about what had happened to their report. Were salient details lost in the mountain of paperwork? In defence, though, these five calls, and three of them were anonymous, were among almost 5,000 received over 15 days in the wake of the media strategy of the high-profile real-time investigation, yet illustrated precisely the lessons that needed to be learned for the future. Detective Superintendent Shepard answered questions at a press conference and defended his officers, saying, I am satisfied that when the officers visited the Gilbert home, they were looking for a child at risk. What they found was a child who appeared to be with a caring family. What they actually entered was a home that had been affected by a web of deceit which, without knowing the full facts, would appear believable. The officers responded in the appropriate manner. However, not all officers were as complimentary, says Nick Holmes, referring to the officers who had attended Brendan Drive. They were given a set of instructions. My job was the action allocator, so I wrote down, this is what you have to do when you go to the address, where we believe the baby might be. There was a checklist of things to do, and two of the things on the checklist they didn't check. They could be forgiven in a way, and that's because when they got there, there were cards on the windowsill celebrating and congratulating them on the birth of their baby girl. They saw a partner, who believed he was the father, and he was just a perfectly normal, happy father. Grateful they'd got a newborn baby girl, and everybody in the family was perfectly normal because they thought that that baby was theirs. They came back believing that Julie Kelly had given birth to the baby and that baby was hers, when in fact it wasn't. She'd deceived everybody into believing she was further on pregnant than she was and that she'd given birth. They fully believed it, so when four support turned up, they expected somebody to be hiding a child and not openly celebrating the fact that they had one. Of course, that wrong-footed them, I think. They didn't get to see the mother, they accepted an excuse that was given not to see her, and they didn't check the baby, because they accepted another reason. Officers apparently were not briefed to ask for the Red Book, which is given to the mother of every child born in Nottingham, and is a parent-held record, given by a midwife a couple of days after a baby is born and used to record details of immunizations, weight, health and appearance, that kind of thing. They were also not briefed to check with doctors about any home birth. It also later transpired that two policemen, one reportedly connected with the hunt for baby Abby, actually lived on Kelly Street and didn't suspect her. PC David Kirk, who lived two doors away, said, The only person I saw from the house was a girl in her twenties who walked down the street looking pregnant a few months before. I couldn't describe her. I didn't even notice the colour of her hair. That's how much notice I took. So, Julie Kelly, what drives a person to commit such a wrong? Julie Kelly was born in October 1971 and brought up in Bilborough. She was an only child and studied at Nottingham Players Comprehensive School before leaving to start work as a dental assistant at the King's Walk Surgery in Nottingham in 1989. She was employed there until December 1993 when she developed kidney problems. It was also at around this time she told friends she was pregnant, though during the time she was allegedly pregnant, Kelly continued to take x-rays of patients something pregnant women shouldn't do. A former workmate of Kelly's at the dental surgery called her a born liar, saying, I got on with her quite well, but she was always odd. The poor girl needs help. Her boyfriend was strange as well. They were the original odd couple. Julie was so quiet, she'd come out to lunch and hardly say a word unless she was spoken to. 
Sometimes Lee would come into the surgery and the two of them would go out together. When she did speak, you could never tell what was true and what was not. She was a born compulsive liar. If she was pregnant, then I never knew anything about it. She was always a large girl, but she actually lost weight before she left in December. Her and Lee split up and she took it really badly. That was the only time she really opened up and that was only because she was so upset. They eventually got back together, despite the fact that he'd been out with another girl. Julie and Lee had met when she was 16, but the two had a very stormy relationship. Prior to August 1993, she'd been dating Lee for almost six years, but he then told her he wanted to end their relationship. It was shortly after that that she told him she was pregnant and that he was the father, when she was not in fact pregnant. There was no record of any GP having taken a blood sample from Kelly to confirm her pregnancy, which was standard practice at the time. Upon hearing this, Lee's initial reaction was to try to persuade Kelly not to have the baby, but she refused and in turn persuaded him to renew their relationship, which was her goal all along, and so began an elaborate deception. People who knew the couple were convinced, as were Lee Gilbert and his mother Joan, who Kelly had moved in with, that she was pregnant, though she'd never pretended she was pregnant to her parents because she didn't think she'd be able to fool them. She pretended to suffer from morning sickness, have food cravings, and told Lee that she was attending a GP and antenatal clinic at the QMC, persuading him to take her to appointments there and making him wait in reception while she pretended to see the doctor, instead merely sitting in another part of the hospital for 20 to 30 minutes to keep up the ruse. By December 1993, she told Lee that she'd been transferred to the city hospital, and kept up the charade in the months that followed, allowing him to decorate a nursery for the baby, and letting his family buy a pram and a cot. She even wore consistently thicker padding to keep up the pretense. In March 1994, she told Lee that she had had a test which showed she might have a Down syndrome baby, and in early May, she perpetuated this deception by even with Lee going so far as to visit a school in Bilborough for children with learning difficulties. The headmaster of the school said later, that he fully believed that Kelly was pregnant when they came to visit. By May the 18th though, Kelly was, ironically, a few weeks genuinely pregnant. By now under pressure to produce the baby, because her pregnancy had stretched to almost 10 months, she told Lee that the baby, the mythical baby that is, was going to be born on the 21st of June, then it went to the 30th of June, then that it would be born on the 2nd of July at City Hospital via a C-section. A desperate plan forming in her mind, on June the 30th, Kelly went to Debenhams in Nottingham City Centre and bought a wig. She already owned a nurse's uniform of sorts because she'd previously worked as a receptionist at a dental practice. There was evidence to suggest that Kelly had gone immediately from buying the wig to the QMC the day before the abduction, for on July the 1st, a staff midwife there saw a uniform belt and thought later that it seemed unusual. She believed that she'd seen the same woman the day before, outside Ward B27, the ward where the following day, Karen Humphreys was. Indeed, it was a possible dress rehearsal the previous day. As I said in the first part, another couple, Helena and Colin Wright, described seeing and laughing at a woman wearing an obvious wig who stood out from other nurses as she wore blue. The following day, Kelly drove again to the hospital, parking her Vauxhall Astro on Derby Road, and wearing the same wig, some sunglasses and the nurse's uniform, went into the maternity ward, emerging some minutes later with baby Abby. Kelly and Abby then went to a male staff toilet where she discarded the uniform and wearing ordinary clothes, the wig and sunglasses, they then left the hospital. 
she was seen by the two witnesses, Mr and Mrs Morris, and gave them the impression she was about to get into a red fiesta on a private road, which was not her car. She then walked off towards Derby Road, went home in her own car, and then called Lee Gilbert at work to ask him, Are you coming home to see your baby daughter? He was home like a bat out of hell, and arrived back at 3.45pm. Kelly told him she had had the baby at home herself, and then had cleared up afterwards, which the too elated father didn't even question. She later burned the clothes she'd been wearing, but strangely neglected the wig and instead hid it, where it was found later by police. The family unit Kelly had created such an elaborate deception to create had lasted just over a fortnight. Nick Holmes said later, There was one simple reason why she did it. Her partner had said he was going to leave her, and to stop him leaving, she said she was pregnant. Then she had a timeline to work to, from the time she said she was six weeks pregnant. She had to produce a child seven to eight months later. But she didn't obviously give birth when she said she was going to give birth. She had to produce a child, and that's what drove her to do it. Now following the abduction, parents of newborn babies at the QMC were issued with high-tech security cards in a bid to prevent another abduction, whilst all visitors had to identify themselves to be allowed in. The QMC also installed 8 new CCTV cameras to add to the existing 29 there, and was also reportedly considering some kind of tagging of newborn babies which would sound an alarm if a baby was taken from the maternity wards. Now today, following a spate of cases such as this back in the 1990s, and you never know what may pop up on Patreon either in the future, massive hint there, is all I will say, security is a lot more stringent about the monitoring of newborn babies and preventing them from being taken. Though sadly, I can't say preventing them from being harmed, as the recent conviction of Lucy Letby shows. But a friend of mine's wife works on the neonatal unit of a hospital, and I've heard in great depth the procedures in place to prevent abductions, though of course, for security reasons, I won't be explaining them here. When she next appeared in court on August the 5th, before Nottingham Magistrates, prosecuting Kate Carty said that Kelly's case would have to be heard in Crown Court because there appeared to be planning and premeditation to the abduction. Jeers and boos and a hostile crowd reaction followed Kelly out of court, her head covered by a pink towel, as she was granted conditional bail, but on condition she live at a secret address, ordered to stay out of the city of Nottingham, and to have no contact with either Lee Gilbert, or specifically, Roger and Karen Humphreys. With her father Eric waiting for her, Kelly climbed into a red Mercedes with Eric and a female driver and was then taken away to await a court date scheduled for December of that year. One man in the crowd spat at the car and swore as it swept by. Eric and Margaret Kelly later told the media that they were truly sorry for what Julie had done and confirmed that Julie was, at the time, four months pregnant, as the couple's home had been besieged by reporters. Margaret said, It's like living in hell. It is a nightmare. We've even had the doctor out. He wanted to take me into hospital. We haven't been able to talk about anything. We're just on our own. We know it was wrong, but can they find it in their hearts to forgive her, because she's not well? We are going through now what Abby's mother and father went through then. We are parents like they are parents. It is their daughter, but it is our daughter as well. Our hearts went out to that mother when the baby went missing, like millions of other people around the country. But we never dreamed it was Julie. Father Eric added, what we can't understand is that she must have known she was pregnant when she took the baby. Margaret further explained that she suffered from a heart condition and arthritis 
and said that Julie must have merely wanted to give them a grandchild while they were both still alive. Indeed, following everything that had happened, Margaret reportedly was suffering from thrombosis and her GP even thought she might be developing Parkinson's disease due to the stress of the situation. Abby was christened on the 16th of October 1994 in a 25-minute service held at St John's Church in Carrington, attended by a large congregation of family, friends and well-wishers. Several members of the investigating team were present, as well as a large media presence to capture Britain's most famous baby, but one of the honoured guests, who went on to become a long-time friend of the Humphreys, was Detective Sergeant Nick Holmes, the officer who had handed Abby back to her parents. He described later the emotion of the case, explaining, We were definitely emotionally connected. You were immediately personally invested in it. Then when I actually found her, and found her in a cot, you feel an immediate bond. I did go to the christening. It was a really nice time. It's not often in policing that you get to do the really nice stuff. There's a lot of grim stuff. It was really fantastic to be able to be involved in it and have a really happy ending. Abby, oblivious to it all, was reportedly as quiet as a mouse and as good as gold throughout the service. On Friday the 9th of December 1994, Julie Kelly pleaded guilty at Nottingham Crown Court to the charge of the abduction of Abby Humphreys. By then, eight and a half months pregnant, genuinely, a baby due on December the 30th, she wore a black, short-sleeved maternity dress and gold pendant and spoke softly as she confirmed her name and entered her plea, watched by her father Eric, who's in the public gallery. William Everard Casey, prosecuting, described how Kelly had abducted Abby on July the 1st of that year, claiming that she'd abducted the baby to continue the lie she began in September of the previous year to her boyfriend, Lee Gilbert, that she was pregnant with his child. Mr Everard claimed Mr Gilbert and his family had believed Kelly's story unquestionably due to her elaborate charade, and the court heard that at the time of the abduction, Kelly was in fact genuinely three months pregnant, though Kelly had always insisted she was pregnant in September of the previous year also, and that she had lost the baby. Rather than it be a spur-of-the-moment action, as she'd claimed in interview, the prosecution insisted the abduction was premeditated, and said Kelly had bought the wig the day before the abduction, and had also visited the ward on the same day. Helena Kennedy Casey, Kelly's barrister, claimed that Kelly was suffering from a personality disorder and had been, or believed she was, pregnant when she told Mr Gilbert. She begged for mercy for Kelly, saying, Julie Kelly is a woman with serious problems and is in need of help. She's not a wicked person, but a troubled girl who needs treatment for a psychiatric disorder that led to her taking a baby. Going to prison today will in no way right the wrong that she committed. It will not dissuade other women from similar courses because all the body of knowledge and internal knowledge about women committing such offences shows they only do it when they have psychological problems in circumstances which come together in crisis. Presiding Mr Justice Laws said he was sure Kelly had gone to the hospital to take a baby but that her personality disorder diminished her moral responsibility at the time. He took into consideration Kelly's childhood, her previous good character, and the well-being of her unborn child, and placed Kelly on probation for three years on conditions she was treated for a severe personality disorder, which was to be in a residential psychiatric unit. Kelly remained expressionless, then smiled slightly when the judge delivered the verdict after deliberating for 90 minutes. Consultant psychoanalyst Dr Lawrence Bell, who had examined Kelly ahead of her court appearance, 
said following the verdict that he felt she had developed an obsessive relationship with Lee Gilbert, her first real boyfriend who she'd met when she was 16, explaining that once she'd played the I'm pregnant card, she felt unable to stop the escalator and get off. She was unable to tell them what had happened. She couldn't bring herself to tell them the truth. Also following the verdict, when asked afterwards how she felt towards Kelly, Karen reportedly said, I'm a forgiving person and I don't see why I should change that now. This is a girl who obviously needs a lot of help and I hope that she gets it. Now, that would be a remarkably forgiving attitude towards someone whose actions must have pushed you to the brink of your sanity, but this is possibly a misquote or mere sensationalism on the part of the press and media. For reportedly, in a radio interview on the first anniversary of the abduction, Karen denied that she'd said that, and denied that she would be able to ever forgive Abby's abductor just like that. What is confirmed is that following Kelly's conviction, Karen later visited the house where Abby had been kept, and then went next door to meet Glennis Smith, whose tip-off led to the recovery of Abby, and the arrest of Kelly. Karen and Glennis, as a result of this meeting, kept up a friendship and called each other regularly over the years. On the 5th of January 1995, Julie Kelly gave birth to a healthy nine-pound baby girl at a secret address, with a family friend saying that Kelly's parents were staying close by to her. The baby was not yet named, but relations confirmed that both mother and daughter were doing well. Kelly was eventually to name her Holly Sharn, and moved with boyfriend Lee Gilbert and Holly. Yes, remarkably the couple had stayed together after all that, at least for a time anyway, to a secret address on the outskirts of Nottingham. She changed her haircut to a new bob style, began calling herself Julie Brown, and failed to register as an elector so she couldn't be traced. Her relationship with Lee, Ollie's father, was said to be a breaking point though because of the pressure of them staying unknown and it is not reported as to whether they stayed together for long or not after Holly's birth. It is reported though that Kelly was soon forced to quit her new home for her own safety when angry parents living nearby discovered her identity. One said, we wouldn't let go of our children when she was here. I'm glad she took the decision to go. But the most devastating effect of her crime was on Kelly's immediate family. A family friend said, You cannot believe the anguish she's caused. It's hard enough for Julie, but all her family have been pestered and threatened, and it's still going on. Everybody hates a child snatcher, but sadly, that feeling can extend to their family as well. Kelly's father Eric shook as he said, This has broken me. I just want it to go away, but I can't get over it. He did say, however, that he would stand by his daughter, although her aunt, Maureen Murphy, had reportedly disowned her. It was not until April 1995 that Kelly was admitted to a psychiatric hospital in the south of England as a resident patient, though she was allowed to have baby Holly living there with her. By October 1996, she'd been discharged from here and was free, reportedly and bizarrely, thanks to the help of former Faulty Towers actress Connie Booth, who played Polly in the show and who had retired from acting and retrained as a psychotherapist there. By the following year, it was reported that Kelly was by then a desperate recluse, jobless and disowned by many of her family, and trying to make a new life for herself and her daughter in an unnamed village in the Midlands, by then living under a different identity. The same year, Perhaps from someone cruelly echoing Abby's case, knowing the person, it was reported that Abby's aunt, Jo Sissons, had received kidnap threats against her four-year-old son, Harry, in the form of vile letters and phone calls. She said at the time, I'm very concerned and just want it to stop. Whoever is doing this is horrible 
and the threats are very worrying. But my biggest fear is what my husband will do to this man if he finds him. He'll wish he never started all this. I don't want to say anything more about all this because I don't want Karen and Roger or Harry in the spotlight. I just hope it will stop of its own accord and things will get back to normal. Police investigated the threats, but there's nothing to report about them being anything other than a malicious hoax, and very likely one perpetrated by someone known to the family too. There are some twisted evil bastards about, aren't there? Now understandably, until Abby was three, Karen and Roger didn't let her out of their sight for a second, but they say they tried to give her as normal an upbringing as possible. They'd moved at the time to a new four-bedroom detached house on one of the most exclusive estates in West Bridgeford, bought from the £100,000 that the sale of their story to newspapers is believed to have netted them, and had even had a third child, Alice, in 1996. A friend of the family said at the time, They've put the ordeal behind them at last. Everybody believes they deserve every bit of good luck they can get. They're such a kind couple that they're even capable of feeling sorry for Julie Kelly. Having been through enough terror and drama to last a lifetime, it took Karen a number of years to get to grips with a stress disorder following the abduction. It was no surprise when the family decided to put it all behind them and build a new life on the other side of the world. Disillusioned by life in Britain, Abby's family emigrated to New Zealand when she was 10. Mr Humphreys told the Daily Mirror at the time that a visit to a New Zealand beach on a recent holiday had been the clincher, explaining. What persuaded me was when, in the height of the New Zealand summer, we went to the beach and found a line of gas barbecues ready installed by the council. A polite notice requested users to clean them up and remove their rubbish after use. In this country, the equipment would have been wrecked, rubbish would have been strewn everywhere, and the gas bottles stolen. That's true enough, isn't it? Where I'm from, they even have bloody ladders long enough to nick clouds. Though understandably, the Humphreys said they wanted to bring up their family, Abby, who was then aged 10, Alice, who was 7, and Charlie, who was 14, in a place where people were not afraid to leave their doors open. Karen explained that she'd been offered a job there by a former midwife colleague who lived in New Zealand, while her husband would work as a builder, the paper said. They also said that the decade-old kidnapping drama also played a part in their move, with Karen saying, People still recognise the name Abby Humphreys. We will never completely escape it, but it'll be nice to live somewhere where to most people, the name means nothing. Now I've found ahead of these episodes, it's a bit of a cross-section that is. Like myself, some remember the tale very well, and I've had this tale on my list for years, whilst others look at you like you've got two heads when you mention it. Very strange. When she was 16, Abby herself spoke for the first time about a dramatic start to life and said how at the time she was considering becoming a police officer, saying, I learned about how hard the police worked looking for me. Perhaps that's why I've been thinking about joining up. Maybe I'll end up as a detective. She told how she was unfazed by what had happened to her when she was so young, saying, My parents told me all about it as I grew up, but not all in one go. It came out in bits and pieces, part of the family conversation really. We'd moved to New Zealand when I realised how big it all was. We were unpacking all the boxes, and I saw the press cuttings. That's when I realised what a huge deal it was. But it didn't stir up any emotions of horror or anything. To be honest, I thought it was rather cool. However, her parents still then found their darkest ever days hard to talk about, said Karen at the time. I'd had those first few hours with Abby, cuddling her and feeding her. The bonding had begun. It was a terrible wrench to lose her so quickly, but I knew I had to be strong and believe that I would get her back. If she came back to me, 
I was determined to make it up to her with all the love that a mother could give. Roger, who was tricked into handing over Abby to her abductor, found it much more difficult to cope, saying, Karen had done some bonding, but I'd held Abby for no more than half an hour, and then I handed her, without question, to the very woman who'd come into the hospital in disguise to steal a baby. I wouldn't wish what happened to me on any father. As a result, Abby explained how her dad would have moments of being hyper-protective towards her, saying, Mum told me how much it had affected Dad, and as I was growing up, it was like he had flashback moments and had to know where I was right there and then. He'd call me out of nowhere and be a bit strange. He felt what happened was his fault because Mum was a midwife at the hospital and it wouldn't have happened if she was in the room. Wrongly, of course, but I can empathise, for you'd surely always think the if only I hadn't and blame yourself, wouldn't you? Totally wrongly. As she grew up in New Zealand, Abby became a champion swimmer, representing a new country, and even setting several records for different swimming strokes. She earned a degree in psychology and criminology before embarking upon a career first as a flight attendant and then in IT, and in 2017 she married Carl Sundgren, her childhood sweetheart. A couple of years ago, in 2020, a television drama series called The Secret She Keeps aired on the BBC that though doesn't follow Abby's story exactly, for it's set in Australia and in it, abductor and mother are known to one another, was loosely based on the events that unfolded following Abby's abduction in 1994. For the author, Michael Robotham, was working in the UK as a journalist at the time, and remembering the case vividly, used the abduction as a seed for his story, though knowing that for a fictionalised tale, he was going to make the women familiar with each other. He explained, Rather than stealing a random baby, what if she actually chose the baby she wanted to take? What if she identified a woman that she thought had a perfect life and already had a couple of kids and, in her mind, was almost greedy wanting a third? What if she took that woman's baby? So from there, he had a seed. Now I remember the show being on here, although I didn't watch it, but now it's one that I may go back to though. Did anybody listening watch it, or has watched it? Please let me know. Now, trauma enough for one family you'd think, wouldn't you? For a tale with such a roller coaster of emotions, I wish I could bring you the happy ending it deserves, but sadly, I can't. 27 years on, the Humphreys and Sundgren families faced an even graver tragedy. For sadly, in 2020, Abby's mother Karen passed away aged just 59 after a seven-year battle with breast cancer, having been diagnosed just before Christmas in 2013. Abby explained in 2021, She had a double mastectomy and reconstruction surgery straight away, and while the cancer seemed to go away for a while, she was back having chemotherapy in 2019, by which point, we knew it was terminal. Abby even moved back into the family home for a few months of 2020 before her mother passed away to help care for her, explaining. That time together was really nice for us both. It was all of us at home most days with mum, drinking her favourite bottles of champagne. I miss her hugs, her jokes and having Christmas with her. She just loved Christmas with her family. Sadly, Abby revealed that she, too, was at the time fighting for her life. The headaches that had plagued her in the weeks after her mother's death were not, as she presumed, the effects of grief, but the result of something much more sinister. She explained, I have a grade 4 glioblastoma. It's a brain cancer you can't get rid of, but most people who get them are older. The prognosis is that I might live a year, maybe two, 
but all the studies are done on older people. I know people have lived 10 to 15 years, but that said, it's not a good tumour. Unlike Julie Kelly, who went on to have a family of her own, it's a happiness which was denied Abby, who refused to indulge in self-pity, even as she acknowledged that cancer had not just robbed her of her mum, but also of a chance to be a mum herself, saying, I've always been that person who was born to be a mum. I've looked after children my whole life, and Carl and I were finally ready to grow our family when I was unfortunately diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. We did get my eggs removed through a fertility specialist, but we most likely won't use them due to my health. Yet this remarkable woman remained upbeat, saying how grateful she was that her surgeries to remove the first 5 centimeter tumour, and that the bigger, yet hollow second tumour had not noticeably impacted her brain, saying, Some people lose all their speech or memory, and I haven't had that, which is lucky, because the tumours were right where my speech function operates from. An electrician who works for his dad, Carl, in awe of his wife's resilience, pledged to be there for her as the treatment assaulted her body. It was weeks of radiation, chemotherapy pills, surgery, more radiation, and then regular chemotherapy treatments which don't attract state funding for brain cancer in New Zealand, and cost £5,000 each time. The couple sought donations through a Give a Little fundraising page, raising enough for several rounds of treatments through the generosity of friends, loved ones and well-wishers. Abby explained back in 2021, I feel sick most of the time, I can't eat much and I'm getting headaches again. Hopefully, I can finish this treatment and feel better. What's happened has made me appreciate Carl and my family and our house, which is right by the beach, so when Carl is working, I can go and sit in the sun. I'm a positive person, but this has made me even more so. I believe in doing things when you want to do them, because you never know what's around the corner. For the most part, Abby seemed to have accepted her circumstances, and pictures available of her in the face of such adversity show nothing but a genuine beaming smile on her. But then cancer had gnawed at her family for decades, striking not just her mother, but her aunt, her cousins, her grandmother, and even her great-grandmother also. Her sister Alice had also inherited the gene for Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, which leaves carriers susceptible to developing a range of often rare cancers from a young age. And though Abby was tested twice, she didn't have the gene. Last year, on August the 5th, the following message was posted on Abby's Give a Little page. Hello everyone. On behalf of Abby and myself, in brackets Carl, we want to thank you so much for all the support and donations. We seriously couldn't have made it this far without you all. I have an unfortunate update. Abby's treatment is no longer working or shrinking her tumour. We are now faced with treatment that will give Abby quality of life. This treatment costs $3,000 every three weeks. There's no system in place for it, and we've used up all our funded money on her chemotherapy. I'll be finishing up work soon to look after Abby full-time. Every little bit counts, and we're so grateful for all the support we've gotten this far. None of us can believe we are facing this, especially after Karen Humphreys, Abby's mum, lost her battle with breast cancer in September 2020. This is another huge battle for the Humphreys and Sungrants, but Abby is being so strong as always. Lots of love, the Sungrants and Humphreys. I know I've spoken quite a bit in the past tense here, and although I'm unable to confirm this 100% through researching, I find it quite telling, heartbreakingly so, that the page was closed for donations on the 2nd of February of this year. Cancer is an incredibly cruel and ruthless thing that always seems to blight the wrong people.
Such a sad tale this one, as always, and your heart must go out to the Humphreys and Sungram families, for some people seem to get so much shit thrown at them throughout life, and experience loss after loss, and these episodes, both of them, are dedicated to the memory of Karen and Abby. As for cancer, well that's one motherfucker of a thing that we all hate with a passion. And it's why I keep the show's fundraiser for Macmillan Cancer Support running. It touches us all in some way at some point over our lives does cancer. And I know from how the Macmillan nurses were with my dad before he died, that what a worthwhile organisation it is. So, how many of you listening in remember this tale, if any, and what are your thoughts and feedback about it? Do you think that Julie Kelly got off somewhat lightly with her punishment? There is a rather unflattering picture of her appearing in court. I say unflattering because the photographer has caught her when she couldn't look more mentally unwell and unaware of the gravity of the situation she faced if she tried. The picture is available in the show's Instagram page and if you have a look, I'm sure you'll see what I mean. I do think that a stay in a psychiatric hospital was the right decision, preferable to prison. And yet I have some degree of sympathy for Kelly, because this is clearly a woman who was unwell at the time. So desperate was she that she couldn't come clean and admit that she wasn't pregnant, to the point where she was compelled to take someone else's baby, because she'd painted herself into a corner. Let's hope that when she left hospital, it was at the right time for her, and that she went back into a community that offered her support, for she has to live with her actions for the rest of her days. And I can imagine that, if immersing yourself for years being around such a character as Basil Fawlty, and Connie Booth wasn't even escaping it of a night as she was married at the time to John Cleese, then not only does it explain why you retrain as a psychotherapist, but arguably, who better for the job to help someone? You cannot of course excuse Kelly's crime at all. That could quite easily have ended up so tragically, couldn't it? But from what we've heard, it was one born out of desperation rather than malice. I drew parallels with the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry not to criticise the police in this instance, for I'm sure there wasn't one individual involved with the investigation who didn't give their absolute all. How hard would you work to help find a missing newborn baby? But I drew the parallel rather to highlight the amount of information coming in from all over the country by people horrified, touched by her parents' plight, and desperately wanting to help, and with that crucial information in the system just buried underneath reams of others. Perhaps some mistakes were made in not performing the full stringent checks that may have reunited Abby with her family a lot sooner than she was, granted. But as the SIO explained, officers had in mind finding a couple with a baby who were furtive, evasive, and a child that was possibly in danger. Not a baby who appeared twice during visits to be the centre of everyone's world in nothing but a happy home, by all intents and purposes, with her mum and dad. Only Karen really, I believe, perhaps possibly Roger too, could have recognised Abby from sight, and as Karen explained afterwards about that bond, a recognition that is due only to a mother's love. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale, A Mother's Love, which you can do in the episode thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or by getting in touch through any of the show's social media links if you like. Wherever you want to, folks, I'm always happy to chat. With that, I am now off for my short break. Well, I say break, but actually be more chocker than usual. And I shall catch you back here in a couple of weeks. All that remains for me to say then is that I thank you for joining me in Pixie today. And that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.